0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 43. Only half the passage is on your insert, so you will need your hard copy Bible or your electronic version. So you can read with me as I, or follow along with me as I read Genesis 43. And also I'll refer to verses along the way that you'll need your Bible ready for. When we left off in chapter 42, the brothers of Joseph had returned back to Canaan. And they had a tremendous supply of grain. Um, Some calculations based on all of them having donkeys, all the brothers, uh, ten of them, uh, probably had months and months, maybe as much as a year's worth of supply that they brought with them. But the cost for the grain to get more of it anyways, uh, the cost of the grain first and foremost was Simeon, their brother. And if they were going to get more, they would need to go back with Benjamin. Benjamin. And the answer that Jacob gave to that idea was never, basically. You cannot take Benjamin. Uh, He distrusted the brothers already with whatever happened to Joseph, and he could not bear the idea. Uh, He's already now lost Simeon. Two of his sons were gone. Could not bear the idea of losing another one. So he was very, very uh, committed to his position that Benjamin would not go back. But the famine dragged on. You know, Jacob probably hoped the famine would end soon enough, but it didn't. It dragged on and it dragged on. And Jacob had many months to think about his life, about his family's life, about the calling that God had placed upon his life. And Moses starts to refer to Jacob even more now as Israel, because this will better describe the mindset that once again God is working in Jacob, who struggles so much. We've been following him a long way. He was a man of fear and anxiety most of his life. But now he is Israel in the way he thinks. Even with his flaws, we see faith working in Jacob to believe on God in the hardest of times, no matter what the outcome, no matter what God's will might ultimately be. Here now as I read, this is God's holy word, Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, We will not go down, for the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, "'Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, "'that we may live and not die, "'both we and you and also our little ones. "'I will be a pledge of his safety. "'From my hand you shall require him. "'If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, "'then let me bear the blame forever. "'If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice.'" Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, "'Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon.' The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they brought to Joseph's house, and they said, "'It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys.' Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, Brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, what an astonishing turn of events. These brothers of Joseph who did him such harm, now have the red carpet rolled out and are made participants in a great celebratory feast. What a show of mercy and grace to men who in no wise deserve it, in fact, deserve the opposite. Help us now to grasp the meaning of your word and have it impact our everyday lives. May our view of you and your gracious work in our lives be elevated and as a result our lives be strengthened for our devotion and service of you. I pray this through Christ. Amen. So much to cover in yet another chapter. We'll do our best. But first I want you to notice something at the onset that is a development in the story. You see here Judah of the brothers. Judah stepping up into a leadership role when it comes to convincing Jacob about what must be done. Reuben was out of favor with Jacob for what he did with his concubine. Simeon and Levi, they were out of favor with Jacob for their massacre at Shechem, bringing a stench about Jacob's name in the region. Now, Judah was no choir boy, we know this for sure. But he was next in line and hadn't personally harmed his trust with Jacob. Jacob knows that they cannot return to Egypt Without Benjamin, he has been holding out, and at the same time, the Lord has been working in his life upon him through providential providential pressures. But he's hoping against hope that the famine would subside, and he would not have to send Benjamin. That there would be a different way. And then Judah steps up and takes responsibility. And listen to the extreme language. Now, it's not as irrational as what Reuben said. You remember what he said? Put it on me, and if I don't bring him back, kill my own sons. What Judah says is more realistic and shows he gathers his responsibility now is essentially the covenant leader in the family. He says, send the boy with me so that we may live and not die. He uses Jacob's words. Not just us, you too, and our little ones. I will pledge to his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. He shows a connection with understanding eternity. He shows something spiritual about what he says. The blame will be on me, not just now, but forever. He understands the stakes. You know, in this little episode, we learn more of the details about what Joseph said. Joseph was peppering them with questions, more than we knew from chapter 42. And they relay some of this to their father. We didn't want to tell him about the other brother, but he just kept, like a lawyer interrogating someone on the stand, Joseph just kept pushing them and pushing them to find out the details of the family. They didn't know it was Joseph. And here Judah agrees to be his pledge. And there's a change happening now in the sons of Jacob and in Jacob himself. There can be no doubt. What is happening is God is showing his mercy to them through these pressures. They don't recognize it at first, But on multiple layers, and multiple ways, Joseph is showing them grace and God is giving them provision. This mercy they're receiving, even in the midst of their guilt about what they did, is starting to soften them and pressure them into recognizing who they've been called to be. And that's true of the mercy of God in our lives. The mercy of God, it transforms even selfish sinners like these brothers into people who become selfless worshipers, of Yahweh himself. It reminds me of the line from Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Actually, by God showing mercy, I learn obedience. I I learn to follow God and trust him. And we see this very clearly in the lives of these brothers who we have been tracking for some time. First of all, let us recall the kind of sinners they are. These are the most selfish of sinners we can imagine. I hardly have to remind you how self-serving, self-absorbed, self-indulgent they were, with very little discernible fruit of any real faith in their lives. They're another example, the world over, of what envy and jealousy do together, what they do to our relationship with others and our relationship with God. It was jealousy that brought this situation to a head. It was envy that drove Joseph's brothers to their murderous deed. It was jealousy that caused them to sell their brother in the first place. Envy, rivalry, jealousy. This is true the world over. We know it in our own lives. We can see it in the biblical record, even the parts we've studied so far. Remember, it was jealousy that caused Cain to kill Abel. Envy and jealousy that caused Sarah to abuse Hagar. It was envy and jealousy that drove a wedge between Jacob and Esau. It was envy and jealousy that destroyed Leah's relationship with Rachel. It was envy and jealousy that brought this whole episode upon them Joseph and his brothers, jealous of the father's favor towards Joseph. Envy and jealousy are not identical, but they go hand in hand. Envy is that painful feeling of wanting what someone else has. Jealousy has more to do with feeling threatened or protective or fearful of losing one's position or situation to someone else. We all can relate with envy and jealousy. It's such an integral enemy to all of our lives. It's heightened in everybody's existence, especially these days. How much of our lives are impacted by envy and jealousy? Do you find dissatisfaction to be tied with jealousy of others? What do they have? How do they get what they have? How do they get to do what they do? How are their kids so good, so well put together? How is their health so, how are they so healthy, so fit? How many vacations are they taking? How are they able to do this? And it's on full broadcast for everybody for us to grow dissatisfied with the manifold blessings God's shown us just because we think everybody else has something more than we do. All of us relate with this in this jealousy and this envy, they're at primary play in the lives of the sons of Jacob. There can be no doubt. Were Joseph's brothers changed though? That's what Joseph's trying to find out in all that he's doing in this test. And the test keeps going on. Are my brothers the same scoundrels that they—that I remember? Yet I want to see Benjamin, so I have to walk very carefully here to do this. Well, yes, they're these selfish Selfish sinners, but God's doing a work and He does the work through a providential pressure He places on them. He uses a famine to pressure the covenant family. They were a rich family by all accounts, by all measures, but when there's no food to be had, everyone starts to become the same very quickly. Their state of divided dysfunction would not work as the foundation of God's people, so God brings this famine. Uh, for many purposes, no doubt, but we know a specific purpose was to put this pressure on Jacob and his family. Notice the wording between fathers, father and sons in verse 11. Their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, he's coming to realize what must happen, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. And it's interesting, he notes some of the same products that the Ishmaelite traders were stated as having, the ones that came by and bought Joseph. This is some of the stuff they would have carried. And he's saying, get this stuff gathered up and bring it as a presenting gift to the man, the governor, that prince that was so hard on you before. Of course, he doesn't know it's Joseph. Carry back with you the money that was returned also. He's still wondering what, what happened with that. So bring double the money. Take also, verse 13, your brother. How painful that had to be for him to say, take also your brother. Now look closely with me at verse 14 because this is one of the most important passages in the whole chapter. This is a short sentence, it's a prayer, it's a blessing. But the most powerful such prayers are often short. This is not just a blessing. This is a profession of the faith of Jacob who is Israel. He has fought long and hard over these months about sending Benjamin. And he's finally able to utter these words. Listen to them. May God Almighty grant you mercy before ma- the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Whatever God's will is, that is God's will. And I accept it. That's what he's saying. But pay close attention to his opening salutation unto the Lord. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy. This is a phrase that Jacob associates from his grandfather. This is El Shaddai. It's a designation associated with blessings and covenant promises. We know this because it's not used much, but when it's used, it's very powerful. He has had maybe a year to think about this, and when he issues this blessing to his sons before they go off, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy. Why do we know this is such a a powerful statement? Back in Genesis 17, when God was calling Abraham, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. What's associated with this? He says, walk before me and be blameless, Abraham, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you you greatly. El Shaddai is the one who provides his promises. He provides, or he keeps his promises. So this phrase, may God Almighty, goes back to his grandfather, Abraham, and the promise to make him a great nation, to be a blessing. Isaac, Jacob's father, said to him when he was younger, Isaac speaking to Jacob, Jacob, El Shaddai bless you. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. So God Almighty is associated with the promise to multiply him as his people. God even said to Jacob specifically, hopefully you remember, Genesis 35, God said to Jacob, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. God's telling him to go do this. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, Jacob, and kings shall come from your own body. And now here is Jacob. Jacob is in a position to have to send all his children away. He's already lost one. Simeon's there. Now the rest of his sons are supposed to go and stand before this Egyptian ruler. And he's saying to them, May the God of covenant promises, the one who said that he would multiply me, May he grant you mercy and grace before that man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. He's calling upon God as he blesses his sons on their journey that God would keep his promise because right now Jacob is old. He's decrepit at this point. He may never see them again. Maybe they won't make it back from the journey in time and he'll be dead. May El Shaddai, the one who promised to multiply from me nations A profession of faith with a very deliberate reference on the part of Israel, Jacob. Risking his whole family line by sending them all back to Egypt. If I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. It's up to God. You know, trusting God and his will will be painfully difficult for us in our flesh. and Largely because there will be many things that happen to you in your life that you will have no understanding as to why they would be. You don't know why. God does not tell us all these things. He promises to be with us, and he will get us through these things. He'll sustain us. It doesn't mean it won't be very difficult, very painful. There are no promises this side of glory that that won't be the case. The promises are unto eternal life. They'll far outweigh these temporary things, but these temporary things are very painful. Jacob comes to grips with this. He says, this is what my will is, what I hope this is God's will, that he will do this. But if he takes all my children and I am bereaved, then so be it. God sends us trials and challenges to grow our dependence upon him because our eternal future is secure. It could be painfully trying, and it was for Jacob. But then we see this shift in the story that's inexplicable on a human level. And imagine if you're the brothers who have lived as scoundrels most of their life, so even when good things come to them, they know they don't deserve them, so it overwhelms them, and they can't figure out what's happening. They're kept off balance by Joseph's gracious, merciful actions. This is certainly a great day of mercy that they didn't see coming. They're worried and anxious the whole way. Verse 15, so the men took this present that Jacob gave them, they took double the money with them, and they took Benjamin. They went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. A a two-and-a-half-week journey summarized in a sentence. Joseph saw Benjamin with them. He sees them as they're approaching. They don't see him yet. He tells his steward, his right-hand man, his his personal trusted assistant. Bring the men into my house, because you can see they kept their promise, they kept their commitment. Slaughter an animal to make it ready for the men to dine with me at noon. It was normal to eat at noon or afternoon, not at nighttime like we commonly eat now because we have you know dining halls that have lights and all the things that accommodate a late meal. In antiquity, it was most, most of the time midday. It was a long feast. It would last them. Get this set up. The man, the steward, did as Joseph told him, verse 17, and then brought the men to Joseph's house. What a gracious response. Joseph pouring out this mercy upon them. It's, it's almost like the prodigal son returning, the killing of the fattened calf. They've come. It's like Joseph didn't really imagine they would come. But here they are, and here's Benjamin. And he has some confidence that there's something different in them since they brought Benjamin, overwhelmed with seeing his baby brother. But they cannot relax. They see everything through suspicious eyes. Look at 18. The men were afraid. Grace is poured out, but they were afraid. They were brought to Joseph's house, and they were, they were thinking to themselves, we're going to get it now. They're bringing it, he's bringing us here to kill us. It's because of the money. That's what it is, verse 18. Uh, the money which was replaced in our sack the first time that we're brought in. They're just setting us up now. They're, he's going to take us. He's going to assault us and steal our stuff and make us slaves. So they thought, what do we do? So they go to the steward, verse 19. They say to him at the door of the house before they go in. Let us explain something of what happened here. We came down the first time was to buy food, verse 21. We got to our first stop, we opened up our bags, and our money was all there. We have no idea how this happened, how it came to us. So we're back, but we have double the money so that we could pay it back and buy some other. They're feeling the weight of their guilt. This whole time they've been thinking they deserve it. Their whole view has been all of this trial is because of what they did to Joseph. They collectively knew their individual sins, but they knew that sin that they all participated in. Yet the Egyptian steward knows their God. Now, I don't know if he knew him personally, but his master Joseph certainly told him. And listen to the response. It's the exact opposite interpretation that the brothers had. He says, peace, calm down. Stop being so anxious. Shalom to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, in the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, the brothers blame God. You remember last chapter? God, why have you done this to us? He didn't know how who actually put them in the sacks, but they were convinced God did it to them to get them. The steward says, yes, God did this, but it wasn't to get you. It was to pour grace upon you, to show you mercy, and it's the God of your fathers, no less. Shalom, the concept of peace here, pervades this passage. What a statement about God's providence from a pagan steward. It was God who did it. Rayburn says, well, it was Joseph who ordered the money put back in the sacks on that return. It was Joseph's servant who actually did it, but it was God who did it. The narrator expects us to agree with that, to see that's the case. Rayburn says he's going to tell us directly in due time in chapter 50, as a matter of fact, that it was indeed God who did all of this. Joseph then was in God's place in the narrative, a God figure of sorts. He was, of course, the agent of God's providence, but in an intermediate way, he acted acted the part of God in his direction of the affairs of his brothers. And now they're receiving this grace that they have no way of giving themselves credit for. They're just, they are overwhelmed and they're off balance by this whole thing. It says in verse 24, when the men had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, he then washed their feet. This is something you only do as a sign of friendship. These aren't just people are coming in to get some food and going back. These are, he's taking them in in a, new, in a different way. And then he even fed their donkeys, gave them fodder. He didn't steal the donkeys like they thought, gave them fodder. They then gathered the present for Joseph's coming at noon. They heard that they should eat bread there. They're starting to figure out what the plan is. They just can't believe it's so. It makes no sense. They're stunned. The mercy shown to them stunned them. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house the present that they had. And Please notice. And they bowed down to him to the ground. Ah, the dream is being realized. How would you react to these brothers if it finally happened? More grace. He doesn't say a thing about this. See, now I'm going to reveal myself. It's just like I told you. You're all. That's not what he says. They're not ready yet for this. Instead, he inquires about their welfare, about their peace, their shalom. Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well. Your servant, our father, is well. He's peace. Again, the word still alive. They bowed their heads again and prostrated themselves. Then he looks up and he sees Benjamin, his mother's son. Is this your youngest brother? Now, they keep referring to him as a boy here, but he's five, six, seven years at the most younger than Joseph, who's almost 40. Now, those of you who are youngest children in your family, you're always the baby, right? Is that not the case? That's the case even with a grown man who is Benjamin, the boy he's referred to. Is this your youngest brother? And then he looks to Benjamin and he says, God, be gracious to you. May God's mercy be upon you, my son. Then he cannot take it anymore. He runs out of the room into his chambers where he cries. He just can't get a hold of himself because there's more to be done here. Uh, Joseph's pouring out this grace upon his brothers, but they're not quite where they need to be yet. He's still testing them, but the Lord's working now. The mercy of God's transforming them. He washes his face, gets a hold of himself, then he comes out and says, All right, serve the food. And the guys are looking around like, The food, I mean, what does he mean? It's a full feast that's going to happen. He served by, and then they got served. They served him by himself and then by themselves. They're together and the Egyptians on their own. It's an irony that the Egyptians see it as an abomination to eat with the Hebrews, so they're left alone in their own time of fellowship and communion. In the most amazing thing, Joseph, in his knowledge, I say almost blows it here, but I know that's not true providentially. He can't contain himself. The nostalgia of it overtakes him. He seats them in order of their birth. How is he going to know this? It could be that Simeon had told somebody and he just was able to know by what they look like and so forth. He put it, I don't know, but he sits them, firstborn according to his birthright, And the youngest, according to his youth. And the men are looking at each other like, what is happening here? What has happened? This is what we've been building up for a year with this visit. He pours his mercy on them all. He serves them a meal and he eats with them. Do you remember the last time they were together for a meal? Joseph was in the pit and they were eating a meal outside of it. Now Joseph has them at his table. What? Mercy and grace. Mercy is written large over this account from beginning to end, says Kent Hughes. God answers Jacob's prayer. Pure grace, what a display. You know, a day before they were traveling on the brink of starvation. Now they're feasting in the house of an Egyptian prince. Westerman, the great Old Testament scholar, wants us to remember the importance of meals in the Bible. He said, the meal has an exalted meaning in the Old and New Testaments. It's not just about the satisfaction of hunger. The meal is an expression of communion and commonality. The acceptance of a guest into the fellowship of the meal is therefore simultaneously the granting of participation in one's own existence. They're being elevated to his level. That's what the meal means. Mercy extended to the brother's making them more trusting. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace that relieved my fears. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. God subduing himself, subduing them to himself. And they go from being self-worshippers of the highest or lowest order to exhibiting a selflessness in their worship. And it all is clear in verse 44. Look there very closely with me. Don't miss, though it's subtle, don't miss this. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, you know and I know what they think of favoritism. You know and I know what they think of someone getting something more than them. You know how they've responded to that. The old brothers, we know exactly what they thought, how they would be envious and how they would be jealous. And Joseph wants to see what they would do with this favoritism on such full display, five times as much to their brother Benjamin. But the transformation is remarkable that we have before us. There is not jealousy about Joseph's extra blessing. In fact, it says in the last phrase, and they drank and were merry with him. They didn't care anymore. They didn't deserve any of the grace they got. So what if he gets more of it? We don't deserve any of it. We all got it. And they made merry together with him. They weren't looking at him thinking, why did he get more? It didn't matter. They're at the table. This reminds me of that wonderful parable that Jesus told of the workers of the vineyard. You remember how it goes? There's a guy who doesn't have a job, any way to sustain or provide for his family, and an owner of a vineyard says, hey, I'll hire you, and I'll give you this much, and it's a great wage. It's enough for him to provide. It's a grace to him that he has this opportunity. So he goes and works in the vineyard. But then the owner goes and gets another guy for half a day, Another guy for an hour and at the end of the day pays them all the same. And the first workers say, why on earth? They don't deserve it. Wait, you didn't deserve it. You were given what you were promised. It was gracious to you. Why do you care if someone got it after half day or one hour? It's up to the owner. That's the old brothers. I hope it's not us. Someone comes lately, we give praise to God for this. And here is Benjamin getting five times and for the first time, they show a fruit, a real fruit of faith that says, hey, we're going to drink and eat together and be merry with him, not against him, with him. We're together on this. We, none of us deserve any of the grace that we have gotten here. Who cares if someone gets five times more than the grace we never should have got? Rayburn says the brothers did not resent the preference Benjamin received, but enjoyed the feast together with him. A brotherly scene the narrator wants us to notice as indicated by that last phrase. Now imagine for a moment, brothers and sisters, looking at this story. Can you imagine being the heinous sinners that these brothers were, that we've been seeing, on full, nasty display? The rivalries, their selfishness, their backbiting, the disrespect for their parents, men who ignored God's favor upon them and their family, mistreated their families at that. Two of the brothers led a massacre of a foreign village. Cold killers they were. One son had an affair with his father's wife. One son brought a, bought a prostitute that was actually his daughter-in-law. All of these brothers conspired to kill their own brother and for 20 years lied over and over and over again to their father who struggled under the burden of what happened to the son. And they kept lying and kept lying and kept lying. They denied for 20 years. Imagine being the kind of sinners these guys were and then being treated like royalty like they were. They were made to be honored guests at a great feast. Then to know that their awful offenses were against the host of the banquet. But the host still honors them and celebrates them. Can you imagine that? Because it's all of us. All of us. We're the same. And Christ has brought us to his table as a picture of what is yet to come. It says in Revelation 19, of all of us. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like a roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John speaking here, Write this, Blessed are they those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're invited, despite all these things about us. You're invited and you're made a partaker and a participant, and he loves you so much that he prepares. On a regular basis, we come to the Lord's Supper with a taste of the fact that we're coming to that great celebratory feast that awaits for all those sinners who have rested in Christ have found their salvation in him and recognize that we don't deserve any of the grace that he gives us, but he has given it to us and we are celebrating that we are all in him because of what he has done for us. We fall at his feet and worship him at that great supper and we do so loving every part of that. You know, the first meal with Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was the victim. The second meal, Joseph is the victor Yet he brings them in with him. At his first meal, Jesus is forecasting the laying down of his life for us as the victim. His second meal, the one that's still to come, the one that the table of the Lord forecasts. The second meal is the great marriage supper of the victorious lamb, which, praise be to God, you all are invited to come to through him. Let's pray. Father, we are moved by your mercy, your mercy to the sons of Jacob, and by extension, your mercy to us, fellow sinners with them. Through Joseph, you showered your grace upon undeserving sinners. Despite their intent to harm Joseph, he graciously used his position to save them and give them mercy and grace. This mercy transformed them. They indeed, through your grace, their hearts were taught to fear. Despite our sins against you and our offenses against Christ, Jesus, you have showered your grace upon us, undeserving sinners. You showed us mercy and grace through your work. You have subdued us to yourself. You have showered us with this great provision of salvation. And you have given us a regular supper to prepare us for the great feast of the Lamb that will come. You are so good to us, O Lord. Amen.